0: Oh, I was destroyed. Um, I went from being at the beginning of the most important political reporting career of all time to being very aware that you are an idiot 22 year old. Go back home. You're
1: listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin and today I'm talking with Christopher Wink. Chris is the publisher and CEO of Technically Media, which publishes local tech news network Technically and nonprofit news site Generosity.org. He's a lead organizer of Philly Tech Week and Baltimore Innovation Week, and in 2017, Folio Magazine listed him as one of the 100 most innovative media leaders in the country. In this episode, you'll hear how in 2008, right after the economy collapsed, technically started as a tech blog between three friends who were looking to get experience in an industry
0: that wasn't hiring. So yeah, we were just trying to like, hey, maybe we can make a company out of this because no one's going to hire us so we can try it. Worst case scenario, we build a little reputation. We, we, we try to weather the storm.
1: Chris will share how they would weather the storm and how over the past 10 years, they've built a company that not only reports, but also offers events, conferences, and a hiring platform.
0: I think one of the few big ideas we got right right from the outset is we said the internet destroyed ad-supported businesses. The idea of reporting being a way to build trust and then be a marketplace for something that was gonna happen
1: and we'll dive into the mindset of an entrepreneur and how the line between huge success and catastrophic failure
0: is often invisible the exact moment that you should give up looks the exact same of the moment you must push through all this and more about chris wink the story of
1: technically and why he thinks journalism isn't an industry right now on philly who stay tuned Just a heads up, there is some cursing in this episode. So Christopher Wink hails from North Jersey and came to Philadelphia in 2004 to study political science at Temple Goals. And though he didn't originally plan on becoming a disruptor in the world of journalism, it was pretty clear from the
0: start that he was disruptive. I uh, just caused problems. I um, was I was very into like practical jokes you know there was some very normally uneventful like we vote for the representative of the dorm that would i don't even know talk to the student council or something that no one cared about um but that i thought it would be funny to without the permission of a friend run him as a candidate. And I put together one of the most, um, you know, probably proportionally the most expensive campaign in (laughs) human history because I printed out 40 sheets of paper with Photoshop's of him in crowns and slogans. And my RA, Donald Jackson, who's still a very important character in my life because he was trying to deal with, you know, he's a 22 year old, I'm an 18 year old. He's trying to deal with like, dude, you, you can't do that. like I. Vaguely aware that you're not, you know, you're not lighting the building on fire. So in the spectrum of things, <laughs> there are is just, worse things. Yeah, but. <laughs> you're just being weird. It's like you need an outlet for your time. I'm involved in the college newspaper. Do you know about that? Uh, no. Um, Donald Jackson, um, he's the one who pointed me to the college newspaper um, to get me in less trouble and stop putting posters up and, and like him in turn getting in trouble with someone. He's like, go do something different. And so I started writing very wordy high-minded opinion columns as an 18-year-old that no one should be forced to read but eventually found my voice in my way but Donald Jackson uh, standing over my shoulder getting reprimanded in my dorm was the beginning of a journalism career so you began writing
1: uh, for the temple newspaper was that temple news It was the temple news and then by the time you were ready to graduate in around 08 at that point you knew you wanted to get into journalism
0: Yes, that was so. I did uh, I did a thing that I guess we say was supposed to happen with college where I went in with some handle on a possible vocation. I tested some of that. I learned some things. I read my Max Weber and got my poli-sci degree. But along that way, I found a, a, a vocation with some focus and some professional contact and did a couple internships. And so in that sense, I feel like I did the thing that I think we say is supposed to happen in college. So yes, I came out with that in my mind. But then the economy was very uninterested in that interest. Right.
1: It was 2008, which was arguably the worst year ever to graduate college. Yeah. And so what did you do? There's
0: a whole bunch of years there that are probably vying for the Grammys of of worst year to graduate. (laughs) Um, But this is definitely in the top 10. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I did initially escape undergrad with a prestigious fellowship uh, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, shared by a few newspapers covering state government, doing very normal early Political reporting stuff. Go, you know, sit in a government hearing and pick out a story um, from, you know, the, the change in the agriculture committee's stance on on financing of of um, you know organic eggs. Yeah. Uh, go find a story on that. that so th- that was a really, it's really, it's excellent, excellent, excellent early reporting work to do. Um, very detail oriented. It's so challenging. Um, so that was what I did right after, and so I was somewhat sheltered immediately from it. Is that when you
1: found out that? Ed Rendell was going to be Obama's running mate?
0: Yes, I was. That is a deep cut, yes. So I am a, at times, colorful uh, personality. I (laughs) I was a mouthy intern. um, And I, I think the other newsroom folks generally found it amusing, but um, I was very deserving of some um, putting myself in my place. So more than a few times there were pranks on me, and one of them was an elaborate scheme in which a um, a series of the reporters in the Harrisburg State Capitol Newsroom convinced then-Governor Ed Rendell's chief of staff, the Democratic State Party chairwoman, speaker of the opposition party, all of these very <laughs> no- notable state political figures convinced them that when the the intern essentially called them and asked them about a story to go with it, and they had me overhear a party rep telling another reporter that um, then-Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama was going to name then-Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell as Barack's vice president before Joe Biden was named as that, and um, Jan Murphy, Harrisburg Patriot News still love her she um, turned to me and said I can't do this story because I'm working on the school board budget (laughs) Um, because this isn't a big deal or anything and said uh, do you want this and I am 22 very aware that I'm the single greatest reporter who ever existed in the history of my industry Um, and said obviously Jan Murphy um, would turn to me and say I'll cover the school board budget you should you should handle this are you kidding me of course She's like, all right, I'll guide you on what you, who you should call. So she very gently nudged me in the direction of people. And she was very, she was like, don't call anyone who um, I haven't approved of. <laughs> yeah, tell uh, me. Looking back at it, I was like, oh yeah, of course. She just, you know, this is a big story. She wants me to get it right. Of course. Why wouldn't you do that? And I called these people. Um... Um, then Governor Ed Rendell, Chief of Staff, I caught him at a water park where he's with his grandson. And he said, uh, wow, I, I can't say anything. But let's just say on Monday, there's is going to be very excited. at all these like comments like this is happening. And I'm envisioning myself on CNN that night. And I'm very aware that this is the beginning of my career, my ascendancy to be the great political reporter I was always destined to be. Um, reported out it. You know, all in the span of you know three to four hours, because this is gonna break. We're always gonna break. It's the Friday afternoons, the Sunday stories, uh, you know, Sunday follow-on stories, is gonna be huge for the story. Um, and just as I was, I handed over to Jan Murphy to go through every reporter and the, the state Capitol, the Harrisburg state capital newsroom is interesting in that you have a dozen or so newspapers that share it. And so all the reporters are in the same newsroom. They're friendly, cordial, but competitors. Um, and they all came in at about five o'clock as I handed to Jan, my story on deadline. She was like, you know, we got to get this. Are you kidding me? You're going to lose it. So she's shouting over my shoulder. I'm, I'm pulling copy and source material in and I'm on deadline. And I turned it over to her and everyone comes in and she's like, you fucking idiot! Did you actually think that we would have you do this story? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, and and uh, what happens when the prankster gets pranked? Oh yeah, it was. I. I mean, I was so confused because I called a dozen people who were not reporters. <laughs> so it was the most masterful job. I mean, the answer is I was stunned. Um, uh, I mean, I made fun of them all for having way too much time on their hands. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, I was. Oh, I was destroyed. Um, I went from being at the beginning of the most important political reporting career of all time, to being very aware that you are an idiot 22-year-old, go back home! Um, and Mary Eisenhower, who, um, who was wonderful, and was at that point was the head of the Pennsylvania State Democrats. Um, every once in a while, I'll still have to email exchange with her, and she's like, "Remember that time, uh, twelve years ago, when when you thought that you were breaking who the vice presidential nominee was?" Yeah, I, I remember. <laughs> I think it's a very good um, act of humility, and I, I look back genu- with a lot of thought about um, how good that newsroom was to me. In um, in I think the very important threading the needle of showing humility. Um, and but not dashing it because obviously a lot of my my confidence was because I cared about that work. Yeah, and yeah. so I was terrified but completely confident in saying I am going to be able to break the story right. of the vice presidential uh, yeah. nominee in this in this historic election year, um, I was very confident in my ability to do that. Um, and I think there's something important there and if I didn't have a caring set of mentors who were willing to, um, kick me in the butt and remind me that um, I wasn't ready for it, I wouldn't have um, been able to do it well. So there's a, there's a narrative somewhere of import. So this is 2008. Yeah. You and your
1: co-founders got together and created this blog, technicallyphilly.com. Yeah. And the idea was that you would cover stories in the Philly tech scene. At that point, did you see it as becoming like an actual publication or a company, or was it just something off the side of your desk to... You know, hone your skills, get your voice out there, get your name on some articles like where along the spectrum.
0: Right at start. Uh, yeah, I, I think one of the many pieces of advice that I would now give to myself is um, think bigger sooner. Um, and we didn't do that. I mean, yeah, I, I like, and as you reference, I like reminding that Brian and Sean and I, the thing we first started, um, he has Brian James Kirk, my co-founder and Sean Blanda we started a, th- a blog called technicallyphilly.com. it was incredibly narrow in scope yeah. um and so that that is the 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 clear point that we were thinking very small because we were very scared it was it was it was not we're handcrafting a yacht we were stitching together a lifeboat and so that was all we were trying to do was um we had no idea where the recession or industry or our careers were gonna go. I came off that fellowship, I did a little traveling. Um, I had very low self-esteem on my prospects professionally. Um, it was very crashing down on me. Um, so yeah, we were just trying to like, hey, maybe we can make a company out of this because no one's gonna hire us so we can try it. But worst case scenario, we build a little reputation. We, we, we try to weather the storm. Um, so it was it was, we shot too low. Um, and then later um, we got we got the full time, but barely so. Sean moved on. Then Brian and I we redoubled and said, "There's a company to be made here." And this is like 2012. That's when Brian and I think re- and I really redug, rebranded as technically. Um, and then Brian and I went on on the the road of like, well, let's build a company here. Why the tech scene? Brian was a bit more technically inclined. He was kind of bumming around some tech events. He was trying to write, you know, freelance articles. I was doing some business reporting, so I was, you know, doing I don't know, fifty to seventy-five dollars items on business profiles for for whoever would buy them. I was doing fifteen-dollar blog posts for, um, you know, on individuals or doing creative um, things for another blog. Brian was doing some coverage of tech events for I think like fifty bucks uh, an item. You know, four or five hours of work for maybe you get fifty bucks. Wow. Um, But he was like, there's people here, and it's not, it don't seem to be covered anywhere else. Um, And I was just really interested in covering any community that seemed to be doing interesting things. We were all, we were interested in in local news. Um, We thought there was a reason why, for 250 years, publishing was the single most powerful industry in every city in the world. And we were very stubborn in the belief that um, the internet disrupted a portion, but the concept of trust with humans was not shattered. It was ad-supported content. So the one, I think, one of the few big ideas we got right right from the outset is we said, "Internet destroyed ad-supported businesses." The idea of reporting being a way to build trust and then be a marketplace for something that was going to happen. So I didn't care what the industry was as much, but I was interested in business. Brian was poking on the tech scene, and he did a, a little um, pushing us in the direction. And we bought a domain, launched up a blog template. Started showing up at events. Yeah, and
1: you started reporting, and did you gain some quick followers, or were you just shouting in the dark for a while?
0: I think, you know, by any national scale, no, it was a lot of darkness. Um, but those early days were really revelatory in what niche media as its, at its best are. So if those first stories are read by, you know, if we get, you know, I'm sure the first couple of weeks, we're like, a hundred people read it, and what we found is when you can end up meeting those hundred people. Those early days, it was like, okay, these are real people. That, when you remove the digital ad-supported model of what you need to do scale, when you remove that, and you instead say, well, we couldn't fit a hundred people um, in a in a small venue. So that sounds like a big number by that right. uh, that scale. So I think we were introduced really early of it mattered more if we could build trust with those people and get them to do something, you know, go to an event, um, in, you know, invite someone they read on, the, on their site to join their team. Those were early introductions of, OK, we could create action because we were um, speaking very directly to an audience that were going to do big things. And I think we bought very quickly into this was not kids playing around, but this was the start of how a local economy was going to change. Um, and so even if the numbers were small for that, the first, you know, few months or more, um, I think probably relatively there have always been small when you talk about, you know, the difference between scaled national media. Um, what we learned is it was more about action. And I think that ended up informing a lot of what we, we do today.
1: At what point then in your head, did you start to consider this something that could be, your career,
0: we we like st- we all stepped on at different times, full time over the course of like six months or so. So you know, I think we were paying ourselves twenty eight thousand dollars. We had no health care. We had so I think in my mind I was like, oh, this is cool. We're 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 full time. We're paying ourselves. Um, I couldn't get work um, anywhere else. No one would hire me. I remember being rejected to be a volunteer big brother and the big brothers big sisters campaign and I was like, oh man, this wow. is dark. I didn't even know that they rejected <laughs> neither did I. Um no, no. but I was like I saw it was like just like a weird unemployed um using grad and like it just wasn't they were like we don't want to put a child <laughs> like oh we need to we need to show somebody this So I was like oh this is dark. Um so uh, you know at twenty eight thousand dollar um Job was like the biggest thing that that had going. My friend Sean, who we started the, the first blog site with, and then he left on. We're still quite close with. Um, I officiated his wedding last year, and we still sometimes tease him that he got a full time job when we were trying to like, you know, bootstrap it. And it was $30,000 and he had to commute three times a week into New York. And we were like, I was like, you, I was so jealous. I was like, you and your $30,000 job and having to commute four hours away, three, three, three days a week. I was like, you're so, you're just so lucky. He made it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are so doing it. Right. Um, uh, so I guess my point is, I, I think, you know, 2011 or 2012, we're like, there's enough here that, that three of us can work but I think I sure had my doubts that ongoing inside my brain of surely this is still smaller, a smaller stage than I want to see for myself. But we, we had moments of brilliance. We would cover a company that, that, that an investor would reach out. We would cover a technologist and and they would get a job they loved. We would um, cover a challenge and someone would solve it. We had all those little, which is the entrepreneurial story, right? Like the data doesn't yet predict your success, but the anecdotes might. And. Of course, the trick is the anecdotes can feed you far longer than you probably should. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a really hard part. Um, but 2012, when then I think Brian and I say we got to we gotta dig back in here and we, you know, went with the rebrand of technically, I guess that's probably, probably factually the way to say that's what Lily really Brian and I had a conversation. When Sean left, Brian and I were like, are we going to? You know, was this just a lifeboat? And like, cool. Then we built a reputation and Sean was able to get a job somewhere else. Like we probably at that point could have taken jobs somewhere else. That that probably is the most entrepreneurial moment because like the first phase was just lifeboat. It was like, oh man, this is big brothers and big sisters doesn't want me. I, I got to like, this is going to not end well. Yeah. So I think that first phase was we crawled our way out of um, being deeply unprepared for the world. And then I think Brian and I had a conversation or a series of them in which we said, we got to give this a real go.
1: So you wrote a piece that was published in the Columbia Journalism Review, and it was January 14, 2009. He said, the duty of every young reporter with dreams of saving journalism is to merge the two, the lessons of the old and the technologies of the new. Mm. That is what you have done. Yeah. And that is what technically is. Yeah. So it's clear, you know, this is proof that you guys did see this beforehand. Yeah. But other, was there anything other than just the sheer rejection of the old that <laughs> kept you believing this, right? Because yeah, that's a long time. 2009 is <laughs> nine years ago, right? Yeah. yeah, That's a long time to be like, nope, I see this, I see this, and have everyone saying you're crazy, you're crazy.
0: How did you stick through that? There are a couple moments where as your reputations grew, we probably got thrown opportunities that. We, we had to have internal conversations of like,
1: Do we stay the course or do we? Yeah,
0: that seems pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, it's still hard. It's not the right thing to say, but a belief of mine truly is that's the insanity of the founder. And like the difference between the raving lunatic who's been working for 35 years and a company never goes anywhere and someone who spends 11 years and it cracks the code or, or spends two years and gives up. Like all of those people are on the same spectrum The exact moment that you should give up looks the exact same of the moment you must push through. There is no one, no way, no answer to decide which one's which. It's about you. Um, It's do you wanna, um, because that's why it's hard. That's why we have declining rates of entrepreneurship. It's fucking hard because it sucks. Like and and the moment when you look crazy to other people because you're doubling down on a thing, like a rational person could very sensibly, like, these guys are lost. These poor sweet boys. Who hurt them? Like that is <laughs> that's a very rational case you could have. And like every founder you interview, every founder you ever meet, doesn't matter how many times have they done it, um, they are right then if they're doing something entrepreneurial in that moment. They are on a journey that's either going to end in a narrative that will show that their insanity was worth it or in the end their insanity will show that they were ultimately foolhardy yeah and and that's every day they, they may not say it but they wake up and they know that like i'm either going to destroy my career i'm gonna look foolish to my peer group or i'm gonna um like a look genius. brilliant yep. yep there's nothing in the middle and that's why a whole lot of people don't really lean in. They do the, the entrepreneurial adjacent thing. Statistically fewer of us, generation over generation, are digging in and saying, I will put everything I own, I stand for, I believe in on the line, and we'll find out if I'm right or I'm dead. Yep. And yep. <laughs> that's, uh, that's you know, that's, that's, that's roulette wheel in some sense.
1: Just last July, you adopted the title of CEO. Yeah seven or eight years in yeah <laughs> you were just you were both co-founders there was no ceo <laughs> right that is extremely long that's a long yeah. time to not for a company to not have a ceo uh, and the company at that point had was established like that comp that's a you know a big company your your uh a journalism company recruit, you know job postings events like this is a big time company and a well-known one in philly on the flip side you see a lot of one-person companies saying you know i'm ceo and or or two or three people and like you're just like how can you say that do you think that there's value in that at all or do you think that most people should wait maybe not eight
0: years but do you think (laughs) that they should wait yeah no one should wait probably eight years (laughs) um so two things yeah i wrote a thing when i came on ceo when i gave myself the the promotion uh to, to ceo um and The fun thing about us reporting in a bunch of cities is we have a lot of relationships with a bunch of entrepreneurs and and i got like a lot of very thoughtful twitter conversations with people who like had opinions because of course we cover a lot of people who are ceos very you know immediately and so my first caveat is i wanted to make sure to hit home that that was about my journey um uh, one of course i know lots of people you know particularly if you're a little bit more advanced in your career like that yeah i mean i'm ready for this job it's just like i would i would if you would apply for the job somewhere else like yeah there's a whole bunch of people like they just it is a job that they're ready to have um two there's some functional reasons sometimes there are you know if you are raising money we bootstrapped um but if you're raising money that there is some you know know, somewhat silly means but some sometimes there there's an investor class that very much wants to say who's the single specific person who's you know, head I can put on the chopping block, Who, um, but who is like, you know, the ultimate decision maker. And I want the title that makes it unambiguous. So there are like tactical reasons why immediacy. And so my point is, I'm not anyone who would ever judge someone who is, I'm a one person company and a CEO. If it's doing a thing, yeah, yeah, that's it. My point is, it should do a thing. Um,
1: there should be a reason.
0: Yeah. And for me, it, w- it wasn't. He and I are very different people. So some of the, the standard CEO fare of, I was the one who was most likely to do the, the the public speaking. I was the one who was gonna be most likely to address the team. I was often the one who was gonna most likely be the, the final person responsible for our fuck up or our success, for good and for bad. And so a lot of those things that come with the CEO title was effectively happening, just because of Brian and my, which are different personalities, and, and he and I just naturally had different, different, you know, focuses and responsibilities. Um, what I ultimately came is, for the organization from the outside, I was probably a year or more late in when the organization needed someone. Um, so I wasn't, and I think it's critical to point out that organizations grow different speeds from people. That's why people leave, even including the founders. If you're growing an organization, it's going to have some DNA of its own. Um And, and so my journey didn't always exactly mirror, particularly when we got to, you know, 15 or 70 people, still a small company, but a little bit past that we're just a handful of people hanging out kind of stage. Um, So we needed someone who was charged with a long-term vision who would at times say and make unpopular, but decisive actions. Those were acts that organization needed. And I finally came to my, you know, self-grooming end of I'm as ready as I need to be to make this step, knowing that, as I you know, put in that piece, I, I was very, very, very aware that that first day I was the worst CEO I'd ever be, and the plan then is that every single day I'm going to get better at it. Um, but that title means an enormous, I put an enormous weight on that title, and that's just my personality, that I, I, it was no trivial act for me.
1: So in the time between the moment the organization needed a CEO, and you were ready to be a CEO did you recognize that fact that the organization needed one and that you weren't ready or is this a retrospective yeah
0: i think mostly retrospective i think forties didn't always fit i never felt the urgency and then i think i came into 2017 just like it is time and i was feeling it and i was we needed to take a step organizationally i was i wanted to charge up myself and uh, and us um and and i think then it was leading me toward an inevitability of a title change and I trusted it, and I think probably during that process, I was like, yeah, oh, and then it started being, oh, my God, yeah, what have I been doing the last six months, eight months? Oh, yes, this is exactly. Seems so obvious. Yes. And I've had a few of those times when I'm leading myself toward a decision. Then I, I find the voc- I do a lot of writing. Writing is very important to me to write, and then I discover that. So it'll be a long email to my co-founder. It'll be a blog post on my site. It'll be, you know, a, a Google Doc for myself. Um, but often the writing of it will give me the vocabulary to know what I'm describing. It'll help me crystallize the idea. And then often I can then look back and say, oh man, here are all the dots. My intuition got me close. My writing finished the job. Then I can with purpose articulate the why, the when, the how, and and, and, and the when. I said when twice, but you follow.
1: And also the when. And the when. Also the when. So that's actually a fascinating sort of tool. Mm. So You're saying that when you have feelings and you have thoughts that are more nebulous and intuitions that you make it a point to write it all down so that you can understand them yourself?
0: Yeah. Among our staff, perhaps, Brian and I are probably famous for like annoyingly long emails with bullet points. I've learned that 80% of that's for me. Right. I'm writing you an email. And so now Brian and I use each other for that a lot. Um, I'm writing this email, but 80% of it is I'm getting my thought process down. Um, And we mirror it, and co-founders are great for that because... A really great co founder, and Brian and I have had an incredibly productive 10 year relationship where you can say a thing that's not all the way figured out. And as you grow a little bit of staff, it's not fair to put a staff in that situation where I don't even know if I agree with what I'm saying. Well, holy <laughs> hell, dude, that's terrifying. <laughs> what um, do I do? <laughs> yeah. And, and I've learned that's like, it's a shitty thing to do to a, a coworker of yours, but a co founder, like, that's kind of that person's job. Yeah. Like, I don't even know if I believe the words that I'm saying to you right now, but I want to try them out. So whiteboards, the, the you know the cliche of the whiteboard, um, it's powerful for a reason because of its mutability. It is really easy for it to disappear. Um, so uh, yeah, my staff probably would would tease me about like in a meeting, man, I gotta I gotta do the whiteboard, and it sounds like a really bad cliche of the white startup bro who's on a whiteboard. It's like it's a, probably a really corny joke, but. Um, the number of times that I have to like in a meeting, I have to get it out of my head. It's you know, visual learner. I, I got to write it out, um, find the process, find the vocabulary, words and phrases capture ideas for me. I'll often take that to an email that I'll, you know, push it to my co-founder or I'll draft in a doc, but I will do it. I'll walk out of a meeting. And I can't get that idea out until I've, I've written it. And that is, um, I think, enormous part of, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use my personal site. I'll write a thousand words, you know, one night. And what I've learned is I often don't even care if anyone ever read it because it's I'm figuring something out. Um, and that is my first draft. I, I interviewed a poet, National Book Award finalist whom I adore. They said the first draft is always, first draft of anything is always for the author. It's the other drafts that are for the audience. And that is resonant with me from creative and fiction writing down to emails. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The first draft is for me. Uh, and if I'm going to edit it and clean it up, that's why you edit and clean up for the staff, but you're co-founding, your co founder you do not have to edit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, Brian, I'll get first draft. This is from the inside of my brain to you. And it's it's my compliment for any, like I might it's my frustrate or terrify staff members, but when I feel most at home or trusting with a teammate, it's when I'm, this is unfiltered out of my brain yeah, yeah. into words to you in an email. Okay, now I have an opinion about yeah. that thing I wrote. I'm totally gonna steal that. Yeah. Um, it's- it's a lot of word writing, but it's so. Good. I wanna
1: I wanna back up a little bit into the story of technically. So we mentioned how technically off, uh, operates events, created and runs Philly Tech Week, uh, and also facilitates job postings online. At what moment did technically go from journalism and publishing to throwing events, and how did how did a whole conference come out of it?
0: One of those, you know, the the, the ten truths we probably got right at the origin. One of the ones that I contributed to us from the very start was, it was always very fixated that journalism, news gathering, we perceive it as an industry, but it just so happened that this 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 strategy, which is what journalism is, the strategy happened to be very neatly bound in a business model for a whole bunch of organizations that existed and were among the most powerful and influential for 150 years. Mm-hmm. Total historical anomaly. You know, it would be like if every car wash had a really great content marketing plan. And we were like, yeah, content marketing is a car wash business. Um, same thing as saying that a journalism journalism is, a, is an advertising business. It was just an anomaly that the business model was so tightly bound. And there's a whole bunch of historical fascinating reasons of we first started selling newspapers. Someone found out that, oh, man, we got an audience. We could just put pictures of coupons in here. Isn't that a great way to make some more money? It's a way to add revenue. And it just dominated infected. It was such a good business model. just infected the entire industry. So one of those fixations that I had is journalism is a way too great to build trust with humans. Um, that's what it is. Uh, and so that meant for 150 years a really good advertising platform. We built trust with people. We put the Macy's ad in, in the paper because right. like, these people trust us. Um, but journalism is a strategy, not an industry. So with that as a foundational belief, you then say, what do we want to do how do we make money on the idea that we have trust and of course we want it to be cyclical and that we'll do a thing that our audience will like and so then we'll add more and it's very it's flywheel um, and so we were pretty early in 2008, 2009 talking about events as a proper business strategy like tech, other national tech sites so they were throwing conferences. You know, like TechCrunch Disrupt has happened and the Verge and the Atlantic is launching an events division and then later the Times is a wine club. That was really cool in 2010. There were, there were all these like events as a, and we were very, we were, I have to think we we're in the, in the first wave of local that was talking about this is not just like a trivial triviality but a way to make a little bit of money um, because the logic was true. If these people trust us, they'll come and hang with us if they are – and then we'll find people who want to meet them and charge them money to put a flyer on a table um really basic really good you know if you're a j school uh, or journalism young journalism kid who has no business background whatsoever it's like a thing you can wrap your head around it's a pretty basic business model so that was we one of the first things that we did we did a couple events that very first year some were more successful than others um right from the outset yeah yes yes we we we, we convened a bunch um sean um uh, led us in convening a um Journalism Unconference that we still host every year. It comes up October. Um, It's an unconference for journalists, which we still host. It's like our one industry event. Um, And we hosted that like two months after we started. And there's like this wonderfully awkward video of of us all, you know, I was particularly in ill fitting clothing um, (laughs) and uh, looking very, very, very um, lost. But we are saying things, (laughs) and I'm like, yeah, I still agree with that. Um, So we were, you know, and I I think about that now when I I hear that 22-year-old, and I'm like, all right, calm down. I'm like, when you're 22, you know what's going to happen. You just don't know how to make it happen. Listen to the kid with the idea, good Lord, don't let that person lead it, because they're going to be shitty at it, because, you know, they don't know all – what the world is that's why age diversity is great at your organization you want someone with the fresh idea but you want people who know how to get shit done that was what immediately led us to the first batch of uh, events and and um you know we talked about jobs being important the first dollar we ever made was an advertisement from from chariot solutions a company that still we do work with um in suburban philadelphia but they hire across the mid-atlantic the first dollar we ever sold was to them for an advertisement that wasn't truth partly to support us but um you know, Tracy Wilson Rossman would, would still say in part because you had an audience of technologists in addition to the entrepreneurs. And sure, I was hiring them and I wanted to be seen that I knew cool shit. And you guys were just starting. And so you, we were like the underground magazine of this community. So we were cool and and indie. And so she wanted to convey, yeah, I'm cool and indie. I know about this. It was it was an employer branding strategy. I didn't know the words for that and what that meant. I wasn't yet focused on an industry yet. I didn't know any of those things. But that's what we always were. So we first did some events. Um, we did native advertising, which we still do. We did these things that we accrued business models that are revenue lines, I should say, that, that um, we're all essentially about. We have an audience that trusts us. We want to take that trust seriously and provide them information that they want. But we're going to make sure the quality is strong. And um, that really led us, you know, really in the last couple of years, that we've focused entirely on the idea of, of talent acquisition strategies that um, everyone in our community hates a recruiting model that is often predatory. So how do we increasingly play a role where we tell company stories, we build relationships with technologists, and, and we match the two of them together. So we're doing some predictive modeling, we're doing some direct placement, we're doing um, some employer branding. Companies have subscriptions with us in which they can have company pages up. And that's a that's a that's a huge... Uh, that's a really long way away from we are a display advertising company. Um, not so far in other ways, but we're essentially saying the business model that we're interested in is talent acquisition, but we want to do it entirely differently um, and want to do it with the trust and authenticity of a community, and, and that, I think, is, for me, what actually business model innovation can look like um, is where you're challenging all the assumptions of what the work you do and how it's funded um, the assumption is always advertising because that's what it was for 150 years. So, of course, we assume it. Um, and Philly Tech Week was, was one of the biggest outcomes in the event strategy. Um, that, for me, is almost now its own animal, uh, where that that essentially does now have its own dedicated team. And for me, that's that's its own. That needs the attention of being a civic asset that, for me, I think should become less associated with technically. That technically is um, w- was where it was incubated and housed. But I think Philly Tech Week, um, in its own right, for, for the Philadelphia area, has become and should – Needs to be challenged to do even more um, to be this um, ever increasingly influential uh, institution, and that I think is almost an example of I'm learning. Sometimes as as you get an idea; it's 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 really good. I mean, it's not core for the exact focus you want to want to have. So I think we're going to have dedicated resources for that, um, and say that we got to double it down on 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 what we're learning about technically.
1: Yeah. So you guys saw this from the front, you know, from the beginning, it wasn't, oh, it wasn't going to be just like a newspaper that sold ads and talked about tech. It was going to be this suite of, um, different services and events and
0: content. It's. And I mean, I mean, for, for folks at home, when you're doing that entrepreneurial thing, um, people in industry, we were not, Always particularly well liked. We're not always particularly well respected. Um, we were seen as futzing around with with business, which journalists shouldn't do. And the fact that we came from a journalism background, it was seen as we were like um, crossing ethical lines that we were. Um, and we thought at all we were very impatient. Um, but uh, it was hard in those early days. I felt very um, looked down upon by a peer group who I would have otherwise sought for mentorship. Um, but it's one reason why we ended up leaning more into the tech community. We, we we never fully enmeshed ourselves in the broader journalism community, which I think ended up strengthening us. We listened a lot more to founders we were interviewing and and cribbed lessons into um, our sector and, and other, our approach, um, in part because our industry wasn't particularly interested in us um, uh, because we were doing it different enough that it was no longer seen as, um, you know, you know, the folks who got attention in our world in the early days were people who used to work in a newspaper who were just doing the same thing as a newspaper but online. Um, that was close enough, and that was like they were trying to save the thing. We were heretics that were um, talking about journalists have to, you know, moderate panels to build relationships with readers so you can ultimately sell them something. Um, we were seen as as like, like charlatans um, from a certain corner of our community, which is so hurtful. I, I think so often about – like 22, 23, 24, 25, when, I, when, I, when I'm hanging with folks like that, oh man, you just like, you need a little bit of validation from those you respect from afar. And, and they, people I respected, did not, thought we were like coming with the end of times. Um, and that was soul crushing. Do you remember the, the either the first or
1: I guess the most memorable moment where you started to feel the validation and respect from others?
0: Yeah. And, and it's so funny because they're always so, um, they're so trivial looking back. But um, I adored um, the the culture and history around the Pen and Pencil Club, which is a, a, um, a journalist-only club in Philadelphia. It's the country's oldest surviving open daily um, club. And I remember being, I think it was right after ungr- undergrad. Yeah, I, I, we might have must have just been starting technically or around that period. And I emailed someone who I knew who was on, on, in, on, on the club's board, who I really respected, and I wrote this like, 500 word perky email of, um, I'm so excited about this industry. And like, meanwhile, I'm terrified, but I'm I mean, like, I'm, I'm trying to do something about it. Like I couldn't get any jobs, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to make my own. I'm doing these things that I think that I'm told I'm supposed to do. Um, like pen pencil club is everything that I, I want to aspire to. I want to like marry this world that I, I love. I love the history of it, the culture, and I want to marry it with what I'm doing in the future. I want this to exist. <laughs> I got this like a week and a half later response that was literally, thanks. Um, oh. And I can remember that moment. I was like, Oh Ouch. man. Um, and it's been crushed. Oh, Oh, it was uh, uh, horrifying. And I have a whole mess of those kinds of stories of like, my point is I, I look back now and see like, Oh baby, you're just lost. Uh, and I just like, just wanted someone to be like, yeah. cool. I'm glad you're trying something. Thank you. And like a couple people from my industry did, but they were so rare. Um, so, the, the moment of validation was, yeah, we, we 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 hired a couple reporters, we gave them health insurance, yeah. and um, then it was okay. Uh, and so I ended up, you know, joined the club and became a board member, and then found a lot of people I loved, and, and was very cross industry. And um, I think with in that in some of those circles, I have a different set of relationships. Um, I think still, you know, I think there's still sometimes a mindset of that's not how we used to do it, um, kind of thing. But that that that's easier to kind of brush off. For those who I respect now, there's a lot more of a, a sense of we are doing what any industry. If you care about any industry, if you care about you know biomedical innovations, if you care about archaeology, if you care about journals, maybe you care about like whatever pet science, whatever the hell you care about, um, you want entrepreneurs picking at the model. You want people trying things. So if you have a moment, that's not how we do it. Check yourself, yeah, because <laughs> um, that's what you want if you actually care about this thing. Um, that is for all of the, the the evils of capitalism. That's that's like the thing it does well is um, it gets people throwing rocks at stuff, and so only the strongest stuff survives. Um, and so you got to hold yourself. of If I really want this thing to exist, if I want music to exist, if I want I want people trying it. And if you have that nah, shit sucks, uh, just remind yourself that this is how we end up somewhere better. By a thousand, you know, its emergence—a thousand ants that are moving the same direction—but no one knows, no one's leading. That's what you know. Market innovation is no one's actually knows which way we're going, but a thousand little ants are all building a hive, and we look back and say, "Oh shit, that's kind of cool. We built that's that great hive. Huh? Wow, <laughs> streaming music can work out. It took us twenty-five years of a whole lot of shitty ideas, but but that's what it was. It was a hive of a thousand ants climbing and putting Napster and LimeWire up. But it got us somewhere in the end. A lot of broken hearts, a lot of anger. Um, and a lot more to be figured out. But that, I think, is a reminder you want people picking at any industry you care about.
1: Yeah. Technically has not taken outside investment, correct? Correct. Is that something that it has been intentional? Like, have you turned that down? Why?
0: Yeah, so early, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and be like, people were just handing me over hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, no, that's bullshit. Um, but we very intentionally didn't, uh, haven't pursued the path in the past part of it's tied to the own like my ceo sense that I, I felt like i had too much to learn to do that well um and part of it was i didn't think i yet had the thing that i would want to invest in um uh i, I invested in us i believed in us as people um i think we like self finance with some of our time and and you know i invested in us in my 20s uh with my 20s um <laughs> yeah. but um I think flipping over to CEO meant a lot to me, and I put a lot of meaning into it. Um, and so now, I, I had a friend who said to me that, like, a CEO's job is um, my goal is to grow the biggest, most impactful, most successful company I can. Anything that gets me there is that that fulfills my mission is the right strategy. And you can't. So um, I'm not someone who would be like, it can never happen. Um, so I think we've now learned lessons. I'm a different person. I would bet on me in a different way now. Um, I think we have ideas um, that. That makes sense, but I am immensely proud um, of what we did bootstrap and and that standard advice of go as far as you can without raising money is absolutely something that that I I I live on um, and believe in. Um, so it was the right move. I learned so much. We as a company went through so many lessons, not burning through other people's money, but you know, essentially my own in terms of like not actually giving, you know, return in equity. It was a lot like put the money back in, put the time in, we're going to find something. Um, So, you know, we started as a services business in a lot of ways remain so, but there's an interesting thing of self-funding some of your own exploration um, and betting on you yourself and the team. Uh, So, yeah, bootstrapping, there are certain companies that financing right from the start is smart. And so it's the same idea of I ain't ain't never going to tell no one that, you know, they're doing it the wrong way. Um, so there's some ways that it, you know raising money makes sense if you have a strategy and a narrative it makes sense because the reality is dude there ain't no right way to do it that's why it's hard because you'll read a hundred blog posts of people are going, this fucking guy knows what I'm fucking talking about he says the opposite of this fucking woman over here shit because um, the reality is you can do it every motherfucking way um, you gotta do it your way uh, and, and listening to a lot of people is good I, I, I'm a believer that you don't have an opinion until you can argue both sides of it so make sure you can say both sides of the reason why I am and am not doing something and then make a move. Um, so bootstrapping important, but I would never sit here and tell you this is the right way. Cause that's stupid. And also the world changes so fast. I think what was the, right i look back and I'm like, that was a knucklehead decision, but it's, it's, it's presentism. You, you forget that in that moment, two years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago, a hundred years ago. Yes. Uh, or God willing the best you could do and give what you could do. Um, yeah.
1: In that vein, What's the biggest difference in Philadelphia today in 2018 than 10 years ago in 2008, when you graduated temple and started your career?
0: One of the very traditional instincts of our journalism training that I regret being too draped on me was the distance we kept with our relationship with our community, like for a bunch of years, Reporters, other reporters and other news outlets would have felt we were still too close to our, our the community reporter on because we'd go to an event and I would like, you know, shake hands and do the hug with someone and like that, even that is like, Dane, you touch a person you might someday need to cover. Um, so we were close by a lot of standards, but we kept ourselves a bit removed from what we were learning in our own entrepreneurial journey because that always felt like a little too close. Like we got to like, we got we to gotta keep up a wall and taking on the CEO role I don't do the other reporting now now I'm a lot more like I'm running the company like anyone else and I'll talk to any other um, CEOs at a similar stage or a few piano lessons ahead of me and I will gather any thoughts I can because I'm just I'm in a sales cycle than anyone else I'm you know like I'm, I'm doing I'm, I'm you know I have a content marketing front end for um, an HR Tech um enterprise sales cycle I listen to anyone about sales cycles all day and I now am much more comfortable in recognizing that I'm just another schmo with a um with a company I have a different strategy I have some ideas um I'm probably hungrier and more competitive than most and that's why we power through an industry that's not very friendly to doing anything innovative and entrepreneurial um but I'll talk to folks in a way and 10 years ago if I started with that mindset it was a lot Smaller a bench with a lot fewer resources for me to even try to go ask about. Now there are a, there is a there is a you know we have had the first few micro generations go through that we've reported on for ten years. There are now people who have done the thing who have failed and succeeded and that's really good and um and the advice is critical and just the someone reminding you that you're a loser and that's okay, is so important to hear. Yeah, Because yeah. um, it's true, but you just need someone to say it. And those things were, there. were hard, there were, you know, there's pockets in the Western suburbs, but we just didn't have a, a center city core entrepreneurial community in any form. So the, the support ecosystem is there. There are more options. We need more, of course. Um, but the answer is over the last 10 years, there are more tools now to realistically get guidance, insight, and perspective on doing an incredibly hard thing. Yeah.
1: So if you could send one message that would reach every Philadelphian, whether on a billboard, a text message, email, whatever, what would you say?
0: Philadelphia is made of us. So if you think Philadelphia sucks, you're saying you suck too. And you are responsible for the best of the worst of what we are. Um, And in your own way, what are you doing to make it what you want it to be? And of course, that's not specific to Philadelphia, but I think a lot about um, that when I'll have to endure um, someone, and this is, again, this happens any, everywhere in the world, but some version of someone saying, this is what we lack. And I'm like, cool, what are you doing about it? One of the mantras in our company is, um, if you bring a problem, you have to bring a solution. And critically, the point is, it doesn't have to mean you have to solve it. It doesn't mean that you have to have the solution. But if you can not at least articulate, here's a thing that we could do, or I could try, or I could do, or I'm doing this little thing, even if I'm boiling the ocean, I'm doing something. Um, I would want more of us to do that. Um, and that that's, again, that's not a like Philly little brother thing. I just think that's, a, that's what I would want for any city. Right. It's, you got to do the thing.
1: Well, I think a lot of people in Philadelphia have that sort of defense mechanism where we do we do have this weird collective inferiority complex and i think a lot of people are i'm gonna shit on philly before you can so that you don't hurt my feelings by doing it and i think a lot of people should recognize that and just kind of get over it and to your point say i can actually change this like philly's awesome i'm awesome yeah but we have challenges so let's work incrementally to fix them
0: a complex thing that i always think about any person place or thing is um uh, usually, the thing you like best about it could also be rearticulated as the thing you hate most about it, um, and that is like every city, a game I love talk, doing. Take any city in the planet. Say what you love about it. I bet you we can rearticulate it as the thing you hate about it. So, Philadelphia is, you know, authenticity. It's provincial. Yeah. New York is um, uh, global. It's also unwelcoming. You know, Miami is is culturally diverse. It is also hard to be rooted. Like, yeah. Just whatever mood or type of person you are you can say this is what's good this is what's bad Um, and it's just people voicing the same idea differently um critically then if you want to change the bad you are definitionally changing the good um so anything you want to change about a place you care about you are going to change the stuff you like about it too that's what it exists you don't you know fill one side of the balloon and the other balloon stays the same size so that is a thing I think a lot about in the overall impact of making change. I mean, when I hear someone say, here's a change i want to make, I also usually think about, okay, that's going to change another part of what I presume you think you like about this place.
1: For more on Chris and technically, you can head to podfillyhoo.com forward slash wink, that's W-I-N-K, or just check out the show notes. Also, be sure to check out Chris's podcast, which is called The Writing Process and features writers such as poets, journalists, daily show correspondents, and even hip-hop icon T.I. As always, be sure to subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, shoot us a rating. You can follow along on Instagram and Twitter at Who. Music by Lee Rosevere. Podcast art by Lauren Carhartt. Special thanks to Christopher Wink for being on the show. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. I'll see you next week.